0: So today I want to invite you to think with me specifically about the beatitude Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7 when he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And I want to challenge you today to, to think about our own need of mercy, our own practice of mercy, in our connections with other people. And what changes in our attitude might be needed in order to help us to enter into this way of living that Jesus calls the kingdom. Okay, are you with me? That's sort of the agenda for uh, today. So let me begin by, by acknowledging that mercy is one of those words that, that makes more sense when it's coupled with, with an understanding of two other words. Uh, almost kind of like the way Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, make even more sense to us individually when we understand the other. Mercy exists in a sort of Trinitarian, sacred triangle kind of communion with two other important words that I want to try and define for us today. Uh, Because the more we understand about these other words, the more that... The concept of mercy is going to make sense to us. Um, To grasp the meaning of mercy, first of all, you need a a central sense of what justice is. I want you to think of justice as sort of the point of the triangle, the top of of the triangle. Uh, Justice is about giving people what they deserve. Justice, when something is just, it means it's giving people exactly what they deserve. It's about aligning things. Think about left justifying a paragraph or right justifying a block of text. It's about aligning things with some particular standard, some plumb line, some important edge uh, that defines the way things should be, the way things in the best of all possible worlds would be. Um, So, for example, social justice, you've heard that term, social justice is about arranging a society's resources and structures and public pathways so that everyone has authentic access to the opportunities or the outcomes that we would want to be there for ourselves and, and for our children and our grandchildren. That's what really, at its best, social justice is legal justice for example is about aligning behaviors with uh, certain laws or certain outcomes or even consequences it's about lining up uh, wrongdoing with certain kind of recompense so that there's an order and an accountability to a particular legal system biblical justice Uh, which is the idea that gets spelled out in the scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments, is all about trying to align our actions with, with God's principles and practices so that flourishing happens for more people, for ourselves and for others. That's the goal of biblical justice, to have life work on this creation and for the created order as God had it in mind. So... I think you get these ideas. Uh, While people will differ on kind of what the ultimate plumb line or standard is, we'll all have maybe different ways of looking at that. Uh, Ultimately, justice is this quest to line things up in such a way that people get what they deserve, what they ought to have, um, in response to this ultimate standard. Are you with me so far? You get that? So that's the point of the triangle, of what I'd, I'm going to call the sacred triangle. Think of it almost like the top of the cross that you can see behind me. And the triangle stretches out to the ends of those two arms. That's a good image for us to hold on to. Uh, when I was growing up, um, my mother was the, uh, the, the standard of justice in our household. Uh, we lived in a, uh, in a piece of property that was located quite a distance from the other houses in our community. And so when we were out there, and my dad was, freak, was often away because of his, his work, uh, my mom was the, the ultimate judge and lawgiver, I think you'd have to say. Uh, she, we lived under her benevolent reign uh, in those years. And it was a benevolent uh, kind of reign. Uh, she was the person who made sure that the portions of food at the dinner table were distributed justly. She was the one who kept track of, of who was doing the chores that supported our family and who was slacking and needed to be realigned, right? Uh, she was the one who uh, sought to see that each of her children got what they deserved in the way of blessings and in the way of accountability. Uh, my mom played this, this important role. But she was also the person who helped me to to grasp for myself, at least at the beginning of my life, the second key concept necessary to understanding what mercy is. My mom was an incredible dispenser of grace. Think of grace now as at this end of this triangle, okay? Grace. Grace in its simplest form is about giving people a good they don't deserve. A good they didn't earn, a a good they didn't merit by being so awesome in and of themselves. It's a good, grace is getting a good you didn't deserve. And and just to give you an example of one of the ways this played out, I mean, we had four kids at the time. We were not perfect. I know it's different in your house. You guys are all perfect. Uh, But we were not perfectly mannered at all times. And you could imagine circumstances where, you know, we'd had a, it had been a bad day. Our performance had not been superb. And my mom could so easily have tried to, to represent that reality in the way the dinner happened. But I cannot remember a meal all across the years of my growing up that was not punctuated at the end with an incredible dessert. Um, we did not get our just desserts based on our behavior. We got so much more than that, right? Uh, And when I say dessert, I mean, I don't mean like pulling a stale popsicle out of the freezer My mom went like all out when it came to doing desserts. She made these amazing pies. She would make these pies inside of a paper bag. How that thing didn't go up in flames in the oven, I have no idea. But the pie came out so moist and the crust so flaky. Just even talking about it, my mouth is like watering. And she would she would sometimes serve us fondue for dessert. Chocolate fondue. You'd dip fruit into the chocolate fondue. Sometimes you dipped chocolate into the chocolate fondue. It was that good. And, and she had inherited these, these ice cream molds, these pewter ice cream molds that could make ice cream into almost, you know, all these different figures, into little houses and little soldiers. And, and, I, and she would jam strawberry ice cream and it would turn it into a little ice cream ca- camel. And I love to bite off little camel heads. Uh, the uh, strawberry ice cream camel. It, it, you know, this was so much more than we this was This was grace. This was grace at the hands of my mom that I was learning about. Um, when and from whom have you received grace? Uh, when have you received a good that you didn't really fully deserve? Uh, because when you understand justice, getting exactly what you deserve, and, and, and grace, uh, it prepares you to recognize Uh, mercy, and it helps you to grasp how all of this stuff sort of fits together. If justice is giving people exactly what they deserve and grace is giving people a good they do not deserve, mercy is not giving them a bad they do deserve. It's not giving them the bad that they do deserve. Maybe you cheated on a test when you were coming up through school. I will not ask for people to raise hands. Um, But you cheated on the test and the teacher uh, found out about it and rather than expelling you and flunking you for the entire year or uh, humiliating you before everybody in the classroom, the teacher dealt with it privately. That was mercy. Uh, or, or, Or maybe you got stopped by an officer of the law when you were driving too fast. I'll never forget a night. I was, uh, I'd was just broken up with a girlfriend. I was driving back home. I lived in the Bay Area of California. I was racing across the San Francisco uh, Golden Gate Bridge at a, a ferocious speed when all of a sudden there's lights the, and I get pulled over. And, and I just, oh, I can't believe it. After the heartbreak of the girlfriend, now I'm gonna get this huge ticket. I deserved it. I totally deserved it. And I just go, oh no. And I said, I'm so sorry, officer. I was in a total daze. I know I was going too fast. And he said, it's okay. Sometimes we make mistakes. And he let me off with a warning, just a warning. Instead of the hundreds of dollars of fines I deserved. that was mercy. Maybe you've experienced mercy uh, with respect to the law at some point. Maybe you made a, a costly mistake in your workplace. I mean, it, was, it amounted to big bucks. It was a problem for the whole enterprise, and yet your boss chose not to let you go over it. Or perhaps uh, you, you went through a period of time when things were rough and you treated your spouse or your, or your child or your parent or your friends deplorably, and th- those individuals did not actually treat you in kind. They did not lash out at you as your behavior deserved. Uh, Maybe somebody discovered a secret about you or, or a vulnerability about you that they could so easily have exploited for their own benefit if they had chosen to do it, but they chose not to exploit that. Maybe you misused your power. Maybe you actually abused somebody else with your power in a way that could make you the target of one of those hashtag stories that are going around these days. And that person, for their own reasons, chose not to hold you fully accountable. That was mercy. That was mercy. Maybe there are things about your personality right now or about your habits and behaviors that are really frustrating to other people at times, and you don't actually know that because they have chosen not to to slap you for it or, or to gossip about you for it as they could have When, from whom, have you received mercy? You know, the central story of the Christian faith is about justice and grace and mercy all coming together at the cross of Christ. If you've ever ever wondered how to boil it all down, what is this whole Jesus Christian thing at its core, I'm telling you right now, you came at, just the right time to hear this. It's about how this sacred triangle works. You see, God's perfect justice, God's total holiness, His his, his internal necessity to make things right uh, felt so profoundly and feels so profoundly the awfulness of of what human beings do to each other and what they do to the creation and what they even do to their own selves in ways they don't understand and how this affects the heart of God. God feels in himself the weight and the stain of human sin in a tremendous way. And he knows that something has to be done to mark the significance, to to address the issue of human sin. His just nature requires that some kind of penalty, some kind of price be paid for countless generations of human sin, for all the ways that human beings have broken the laws of God and injured one another and the world he has made. And God just can't shrug it off. He can't just let it go, pretending it's not there. The relationship with him and humanity can't be realigned without something being done that displays the awful cost that blind, willful sin deserves. There has to be some outpouring, some shedding of blood, in a sense, to demonstrate the heinousness and the horror of this world in which little kids get abused and vulnerable people get exploited and and, and the beauty of the creation gets ravaged, God has to do something. So the question comes, what penalty will be enough? What death could possibly be sufficient to pay the price that justice requires? For the reality of sin before this holy God, what will balance the scales, close the gap, realign the cosmic order? Maybe God should just wipe out half of the human race to do it. Uh, On Friday, I went and saw Avengers, Infinity War, and one of the characters in that story decides he's going to fix the universe by wiping out half of all life so the other half has more room to move in. Maybe God could have done that. Maybe that would have balanced things. As William Shakespeare confesses in his famous play, The Merchant of Venice, in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. Were God to be perfectly just, to hold us all accountable for for sin, half wouldn't be enough. All of us, all of us, would be held responsible. The Apostle Paul puts it even more bluntly in one of his teachings to the church at Ephesus. He writes, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We didn't even know it, but we, were, but we are all, in a sense, under a death sentence. If we were to be held fully responsible for all that we have done and others around us have done, We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts all the time. Like the rest, he says, we were by nature deserving of wrath, of of punishment and consequence for our sin. But there in that place where every single human being, every person should have gotten what we deserved, We received a good we didn't deserve. Because in His amazing grace, Jesus, like the most remarkable mother, stepping in for the sake of her kids, Jesus, hanging on the cross, says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're kids. They don't see fully the impact of what their sin is doing. Extend them grace. And God, listening to this plea, this incredible plea, in his stunning mercy, chooses to not give human beings what they deserve, but rather to accept in his own body, in his own flesh, the punishment. To take it all on, the weight of justice upon himself. The penalty that should have been ours. Paul puts it this way. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in what? Mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions for it is by grace you have been saved and not of yourself so that no one should boast. The significant question is will the reality of what Jesus has done make any difference? Does the reality of what God chose to do on that cross make any difference in the way that we now treat other people? If you had to pick out, or I had to pick out, the most disturbing story I've ever read in the Bible, it would be the story that I read in Matthew chapter 18. It is the most challenging parable Jesus ever told. It begins in verse 21. I encourage you to read it for yourself this afternoon, or maybe even now as I'm talking. You might want some relief from my words. Read the word of God. It's a much better option for you. But in the story, Jesus describes a particular servant who has been called uh, to account uh, to his master, in this case a king, for the debt that he owes. And he comes before the king in the chambers of the king and the king lets him know what the the debt is and the the servant uh, asks for some more time to take care of the debt. And I quote it. He actually says, Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. And he really means this. He really means this. He's going to pay back everything. At this point in the story, the audience that is listening to Jesus tell the story just goes, and then they burst out into riotous laughter. They're knee-slapping. They're rolling on the ground at this thing that the servant in the story has just said. Why? Because earlier in the story, they'd been told how much he owed. He owed the master 10,000 bags of gold. Like a lot. Like to put it in perspective, at the average wage of a servant in that day, it would take the servant 150,000 years to pay it back. If he worked all day, every single day, it would require 150,000 years of days to pay back all that gold that he owed. In other words, it ain't happening. It's impossible, and the servant doesn't get it. He just does not understand how deep in the holes he is, what it would take to actually balance the scales. And in this way, Jesus is trying to impress upon us, neither do we. We're always comparing ourselves, our sense of merit, our goodness to to the next guy or to the worst person we know. And we come out smelling pretty good, looking pretty good. Oh, maybe a little bit of fine-tuning is needed. Maybe a little bit of improvement is needed. We have no idea how vast is the distance between the holiness of God and us. We just don't get it. What's the difference between 10,000 bags of gold and our capacity? And yet in a foreshadowing of what Christ would do on the cross, Jesus goes on to say in the story that the servant's master took pity on him. And he canceled the debt and he let him go. And again, the audience listening to the story are going, oh, what? He forgave, forgave all that debt. And then Jesus goes on and tells the next part of the story. He says, but when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Again, what's the difference? Between 10,000 bags of gold and 100 silver coins? A lot. A lot. And so, of course, he said to the second servant, Ah, write it off, let it go. I just been forgiven a hundred thousand bags of gold. Hey, in fact, do you need any help? Can I help you? Of course, right? That's the response. But then Jesus goes on. The servant grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded and his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, oh, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. Where have we heard that line before? Like 10 minutes ago in the king's chamber. But he refused, the story says. And instead, he went off, and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. Why were they outraged? Because they had a sense of justice. They had some sense of justice, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. And what do you suppose the king did? Do you think he extended even more mercy to the guy? Didn't he? Didn't he do that? No, he did not. No, he did not. The king said... Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. How are you going to pay it back when you're in jail being tortured? The answer is never. Never. And then Jesus goes on. And this is the part that makes me go, this is why I say it's the most disturbing story that Jesus ever tells. Jesus turns towards his disciples and he says, I quote, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Many, many years ago there was a, um, a Scottish farmer by the name of Fleming who was out on his way to town from the place where he farmed and as he's going upon his way, he hears a sound, a racket coming from somewhere off in the woods. And, and he stops and and he he discerns that the racket he's hearing is the sound of somebody yelling. There's a somebody out there in the woods who's in trouble of some kind and there's desperate cries for help. And so he sort of drops the stuff that he has and he, he goes running off through the woods and he happens upon a clearing in the woods and he sees what's going on. In the middle of the clearing, he sees the... Uh, unmistakable form of a uh, a boy uh, who is uh, almost up to his armpits in this, the black sucking muck of a bog. And he recognizes from the clothing of the boy in the bog that the boy is a nobleman. He's from exactly that class of person who normally looked upon a peasant farmer's family with complete contempt and disdain if they saw them at all. And, and the boy is struggling, and the more he's struggling, the deeper he's sinking. And, and Farmer Fleming is faced with a terrible choice, he, you know, he, there's this major part of him that's, that's thinking, you know, the kid's only getting what he deserves. I mean, it was stupid for him to try and walk across that bog. And I know what his kind does. I know how arrogant they are and how awful they are to my kind. So I think I'll just let him die a terrible death. He'd be getting what he deserved. That's one of the impulses. Rising up. But there's this other impulse that surges inside of the farmer. And at the risk of his own life, the farmer yields to it. A- and he makes his way out across the land, and he grabs a, a, a long tree branch, and he crawls out, and, and he stretches out the branch, and the boy is able to grab it, and the farmer gradually drags the boy to safety. It saves his life. Well, the next day, uh, Farmer Fleming is in his little hovel of a house when there's a huge clatter outside, and he looks out the door, and he sees a very beautiful carriage rolling up with its horses and stops right in front of the house, and this tall, well-dressed nobleman steps out of the carriage and comes up to the door, and he says, Are you the man that saved my son? And Farmer Fleming says, Well, yes, sir, I am. And the nobleman said, well, I've come to pay you back. And uh, I want you to, I want to pay you money for what you've done. And Farmer Fleming says, no, 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 you you don't understand. I'm not going to take any money for simply doing what was right. And The nobleman is flummoxed by the response. And at just this moment, the farmer's son, about the age of the nobleman's son, comes running up, and the nobleman says, is that your boy? And... The farmer says, yes, it is. And the nobleman says, well, then I have an idea. If you won't accept money, let me educate your son in the same way that my son, whom you saved, is going to be educated. And so he did. So he did. The boy went off to some of the locally finest schools and eventually some of the nationally finest schools. Eventually, the son of the merciful father went on to attend St. Mary's Hospital Medical School in London, one of the most prestigious medical schools of the day. And in time, that peasant boy became known throughout the world as Sir Alexander Fleming, the discoverer of penicillin. Years afterwards, The nobleman's son, who had been originally saved from that bog, was stricken with pneumonia, partially because of his own bad health habits. He was bringing the disease actually upon himself because he wasn't taking care of himself. But his life was saved a second time. Guess how? Penicillin. Mercy a second time. But here's where the story is even more amazing, because that noble man's son, the sick man, was named Winston Churchill. And the mercy he had received, not just once, but twice now, finally became in him the stuff of a of a different kind of character. It became a gratitude and a courageous will that God would then use to make him an instrument that would extend mercy and grace and hope to an entire nation and in some sense help to save an entire world order. If the Bible is correct, and I'm moving towards a close, so hang in there. (laughs) Mercifully. Mercifully. If the Bible is correct, then much like Winston Churchill, you and I are up to our armpits today in mercy. It wraps all around us. It's actually holding us up. It's the most defining thing about our lives, even if we don't see it. And the question is will we get that or will we be like the servant the first servant in the parable Jesus tells there are surely times when we ought to demand justice and accountability from people we know who have bogged themselves down in black muck due to their own stupidity and arrogance time and time again as Agatha Christie famously observed one time too much mercy too much mercy Has sometimes resulted in further crimes which were fatal to those who need not have been victims if justice had been put first and mercy second. We need a government that cares about justice. There needs to be accountability in our businesses, our families, our communities. This is a good value. It needs to be part of that triangle. But before we exercise it and personally when we are called to think about this it seems vitally important that we also consider the mercy and the grace we've been given. I'm living today with the witness of what Jesus did and with the words that Jesus said. And Jesus said, "Blessed." are the merciful. Blessed are those who do not give others the bad they actually deserve because in this way they are a bit like the best mothers who are a bit like the most high God. And blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And mercy begets mercy. And in a world of self-righteousness and hostility that's growing all the time, it seems to me, maybe to you too, I hope, that mercy is one of the attitudes most needed in our time. So, final question. Having stood before the king today, having seen the debt that he has washed away, how are you going to treat those sinners you're going to meet when you go out those doors? Please pray with me. Lord, we care about justice. We don't believe you ask us to be perpetual doormats. We know that without accountability, some people will never grow up, and some people will get away with murder. But it also sobers us that you have said in your word That with the measure of mercy and grace we use toward others, it will be measured unto us. And so as we go forth today, give us not only wise, but also generous hearts, like that of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.